Awesome. Now, welcome back to the Pro Formula Podcast. I'm your host, Tarek Shabazz, and the purpose of this podcast is to provide professionals with the formula to success. I'm here at Dream Motivate Studio out here in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I got to tell you, I'm super excited and super uh, proud of this. Uh, my next guest is Dr. Octavia Landrum. How you doing today, Dr. Landry? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. She's already trying to cut up, y'all, so we got to just get her before she gets rocking and rolling. How's things going these days, Doc? Things are going busy, uh, very busy. We have um, a lot of new things coming into the company. I have uh, a lot of things happening in my personal life, so we just um, trying to enjoy life, trying to enjoy business, uh, trying to make sure that both things keep us happy. Yeah, that's good. I think trying to find a way to balance your professional life and, and balance your personal life must be a challenge these days. But um, I think for, for people that are tuning into the show, I'm sitting here. Um, Dr. Landrum is, is a clinical psychologist. How did you get into that field? And, and talk to me a little bit about what you do on a daily basis, because I'm not sure if people really understand what that looks like. Sure. Um, to be honest, I was probably about eight when I decided I wanted to be a psychologist. Stop it. Um, eight years old. You said I want to be a doctor. Hey, you, you know what? It wasn't it wasn't that specific. I didn't understand it uh, credentials wise, but I understood what I wanted to do. OK. Um, my parents got divorced uh, and that was the beginning. Of, I come from the old school. Don't ask questions. Yes, ma'am. You know, do do what we say. Uh, we don't have to explain stuff to you. And so there were a lot of scenarios where. Um, myself and my brother, we found ourselves saying, are you guys going to ask us what we want? Do you or can we at least give us an opinion about this? Um, and there just became a point where I said, I'm going to be the person when I grow up that's going to at least ask the kids what they want, because it is important. Um, this affects us, too. I think my parents kind of had a reaction like, hey, there's a lot of adult stuff to figure out. And that's what we're going to focus on. And then nothing else matters. And uh, my brother and I had those uh, side conversations in the back, not in front of our parents, but like. Right, because we can't talk about those kind of things with our parents. Like, Mama, I'm hurting right now. We cannot. We can't even question decisions. We yeah. can't We can't know what's best. And not to say I didn't, not to say my mom didn't know what was best or that my parents weren't trying to make that decision, but um, it was important to us to a certain degree to try to at least be heard, even if they didn't do what we wanted. To just ask us what we wanted. No one ever asked. And so um, I started out saying I wanted to be the person to answer questions for children, to help children when things get hard, to make sure that um, we don't just decide that they're that's not important so that people don't act out. Um, and then eventually I, um, I did my first practicum when I was in school. So I went to school. I said, hey, I want to be a psychologist. Um, that started the track of, hey, you need a bachelor's degree and then you need a master's. And then when I got to my doctorate program, I did my first residency um, hours with the uh, Child Protective Services. Okay. And I learned that children was not what I could work yeah. with. It was so hard. Um, I I could have adopted every kid in there. I wanted to take everybody home. I wanted to rescue um, everybody. And I figured out, like, there's no, there's no longevity in this. You know, I'm not going to be able to sustain... Uh, one of one of the biggest things that our professors will tell us to do is try to uh, separate work. You know, in order for you to be able to do this job for a long period of time, you've got to be able to leave work at work. Yeah. Um, and 
with the kids, I couldn't do that. It, I, when you're seeing some of the things that I'm sure you've seen as a, dealing with children in psychology, I don't know how you don't bring that home. You know, like the people that can do that. Shout out to all the people that's absolutely. out there working with the adolescents and working with the juveniles. Absolutely. That must be a tough, a tough job. Absolutely. I, I believe that. And I saw that for myself. And I said, you know what? I uh, cannot adopt everybody. I cannot try and save everybody. Um, I want to be able to help the children, but how do I do that and still take care of myself? And so um, I eventually found my way into um, corrections, um, working with adults. And a, a lot of, I think somebody told me in a child development course that um, development is is not necessarily linear. And so there are phases in our childhood that sort of impair um, our functioning. And so there's sort of a, a kid in each one of us for areas of impairment right so there's emotional there's there's physical um and and places where there's an impairment where you're a child you kind of sort of have the age differences there right so you could be chronologically 30 and emotionally 17 and physically 22 right and so the that development so it kind of helped me say okay i can work with adults but their um childhood traumas are going to still show up and so i'll still be able to reach that child in adults and it won't be so messy it's it's cool that you say that because it's interesting how you're still dealing with ele- uh, juvenile elements in humans Absolutely. and and it it may be a 30 year old man like you said but he may in his development only be 14 or 15 years old yeah Absolutely. So talk to us about kind of a day to day, what kind of patients you see, what type of flow. What, tell me a little bit about your practice. Sure. So I am uh, primarily in forensics. Um, I work with uh, correctional settings. I work with police officers, uh, military, firefighters, um, constables. Um, I currently have contract with Dallas County. So I uh, service the sheriff's department. Uh, <clears throat> so a lot of pre-employment evaluations, um, try, trying to help the agency determine you know, who's appropriate for public safety? You know, does this person function well under pressure? Do they respond, you know, well? We One of the things that I think kind of pushed that movement was uh, there was a lot of police brutality. There was a lot of things that came up about evaluations and whether or not uh, public safety people were even sort of uh, emotionally um, evaluated appropriately. And so that became one of the biggest um, contracts that was, was kind of coming out in about 21. Um, so I was able to pick that contract up. Right. Um, I work with, uh, I have a license in California also. So I work with um, the Department of Corrections there. Um, They have elements of um, civil commitment for patients who are either pretrial and there's an incompetence or a sanity evaluation that's needed um, or on the back end once they're ready for parole. um, If we think that they could potentially um, re-offend and be dangerous, uh, we evaluate there to determine if they should be civilly committed instead of paroling to the community. So... Um, those are things that primarily come into my office. I have some attorneys that reach out. Um, so we do, um, personal injury cases. Um, so in cases where things have happened and then potentially there's some psychological trauma, we evaluate there to try to determine if there's any fault on the insurance to try to, um, help those people sort of get back to a normal life. Yeah. I, I really could tell, you know, when I was growing up and even now I got a lot of friends that are in the correctional facilities and that are working on trying to get parole. And I think one of the things that's important for them is that they are able to meet with a practitioner who looks like them and who may understand that situation. Um, tell me a little bit about that process when you're seeing your own brothers or your own sisters and they they getting out of the, the system or you may have to be the, the provider or practitioner that says, bro's not ready to get back out there. 
how do you separate your um, the way that you grew up in your community from your patients? Um, so what I'll say is infrared forensics disclosure is not the best of practices, right? So we don't have a lot of conversations about my personal life. I am mindful to tell them, like, you know, I'm not the person being interviewed or evaluated. So uh, you don't necessarily get to ask me questions. Uh, we, we're not going to reciprocate that as not an interview. But um, but I'm very direct. And a lot of times I have a, a very real conversation um, with my clients and patients that come through. And I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, these are mandated people. So it's not... You're talking to me because you have to. Yeah. Um, but I make sure that we can we can sort of remove that element of this is forced and I hate it and this is uncomfortable. Uh, I am very personable. There are a lot of scenarios where we can kind of smooth things over to where people end up telling me things that they didn't mean to tell me by the time it's over with, you know. So um, and a lot of times I get the feedback from my clients that like, you know, if this wasn't if this wasn't this evaluation or if I weren't here for that reason, um, you seem cool enough to hang out with on my free time. You know, so I think that's I think that's what's helpful. People want to see people that look like them, um, that have had struggles and trouble that um, know life. I mean, I do tell my patients, hey, if I had to have every trauma uh, experience, every setback that everyone in the world has, I wouldn't be any good to you. Right. I wouldn't be able to help you. But um, but I can empathize and understand what's going on and then between my understanding of people and my training I'll be able to help you I think that's incredible and I think in our community uh, with black with black men uh, I'm starting to see that it's becoming normal to to talk about needing help and talk about needing to go talk to somebody and I'm really proud of that I, I myself uh, had to go see some counselors and understand I call him little tart the guy that's inside of me that's still reminding me of bro, you was broke back in the day and you may not be able to get where you're trying to go. And so I really commend you for being in the field that you're in because um, I do think representation matters. And I think it's I'm much more comfortable talking to you than I would be talking to someone else who may not understand my socioeconomic background or where I come from or where I'm at today. Um, so salute to that. But have you seen um, an, an influx or an uptick in uh, black males or, or black people in general coming and getting psychological services? Um I'll say this. I'll say again in the forensic setting, there's definitely we outnumber the population That's right. of um, people being. Break that down for us real quick, because you keep saying forensic. And I, I think I have an understanding. This is really somebody that's coming in. They're mandated by the state or mandated by the prison system to come in and talk to you to determine whether or not they're they're free. What does that actually mean? Talk. To sure. You. Absolutely. So most of most of my clients in the in the correctional setting are actually still inmates. Um, they are being they're either in a sentence already. And so the expectation is that they get services. And that's just um, state mandate. You know, the state requires that we try to rehabilitate. And so there are certain services that they will be privy to there. Um, most of the services require an evaluation initially to figure out what type of services they will need. We make recommendations for program and treatment while they're there um, with the hopes that there's some degree of stability by the time they're ready to get out. Um, so, yes, in that in that case, we as a minority are um, we outnumber uh, That's because we're in the population in prisons. We are hands over feet with people being uh, in the correctional setting as minorities over Caucasian or Asian, or any other um, ethnicity. So, yes, that population, I will say. And I, and I want to the difference, though, you asked me the question about them coming to us again. They're mandated. Right. So I think a lot of it is they're coming not necessarily because they want to. Yeah. I think once they get there, there is a little bit more of an appreciation of I'm glad I came. Um, but what they have reached out initially, um, I doubt it, to be honest. Um, and I think in the reality of it is a lot of times I have to push uh, my patients, especially in the correctional setting, 
to do the work because there's also this culture in prison about how you actually do your time, right? And I can't um, weaken myself to open up to, you know, there's certain things that I can't work on in here, doc, because that's going, I need to stay where I am so that I can keep my status or so that I can function in here so that I can not worry about my Almost survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, are they coming to me? Not necessarily. When they get to me, some of them are happy to get there. Some of them still, still fight it. So, you know, um, what I'll say is for the population that's coming to me um, as law enforcement, so we talk about the contracts I have with the county, um, those people are absolutely happy to see me. They're happy to see that there's somebody um, screening this this area before, you know, because this is the community I actually live in, right? So yeah. these these same people who potentially pass these evaluations could be the people who are issuing citations or are pulling someone over or responding to an incident, right? So it's good it's good for them to hear um, and I say that to them, even for those that don't pass my evaluation. Hey, listen, but the person who if you were on the other end of this, you know, if I'm telling you you're not ready, you would appreciate knowing that I'm going to have that same stance um, for anyone who comes through in this position, because that could be the person that pulls you up. Right. That could be the incident that gets out of hand. That could, that could be where the excessive force comes. That's my job to make sure that the community is safer. And I'm not saying I'm catching every um, instance of, you know, uh, non-suitability but that's 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 the goal at the time to evaluate people to make sure that we're putting the right people in positions of power that we're giving the right people authority um and i think just with with some of the cases that we've seen uh in police brutality i think covid for some reason it brought that out where we were able to see that a little bit more and i think it's really important that we have uh, practitioners who are doing evaluations to determine whether or not somebody is actually fit to do their job sure uh, and, and, and i don't know that that we know that those kind of evaluations are going, is that something that's increased and in, in, in you see more of now that we've had that kind of 2000, 2020 kind of deal break out? Or, or was this always a service that was offered and we just as a community didn't understand that you all were already doing this? Probably the latter. I think what happened, though, is there became some more emphasis on what we actually screened for. Okay. Um, most of the states require a psyche valve for a certain position. So, you know, we talk about, you know, public safety, like I said, in the military to be a sniper, to be a pilot. These are positions that require psyche valve all the time. They always have. Um, I think what we did was kind of buckle down a little bit more on what we're screening out, okay. uh, what we're identifying. You know, our research is always getting stronger. So we're able to sort of predict, if you will, a little better personalities, you know, certain character traits, certain things that would be a red flag and say, hey, this is a person that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, so I think the research is supporting us a lot more, too. Um, it's also pointing out the training that people need to actually work with people that, with mental illnesses. That mental illness didn't just start. Um, I know it feels like now all of a sudden we have so many more, you know, the school shootings and things like that. It seems like now there's more mental illness. It's been there. Um, we hadn't we hadn't been attending to it. I think, you know, social media and cameras being everywhere. That's another thing that makes things look like it's more, but it's just more present because now we um, can, everyone can capture it. Right. Somebody can. There's hardly anything that can happen that someone hasn't caught on their phone or their doorbell camera or, you know, so there's there's things where it just seems like there's a lot more of it. And it's just been there. I think it's just more prevalent because of the way our culture has evolved. Yeah, I I think cameras are everywhere now. You can't walk down the street without somebody ca capturing it on camera. But I guess for the viewers who's watching the show, help us understand if that's the case, we've been doing these evaluations. Why do we keep seeing such, why do we keep seeing this brutality? Why do we keep seeing um, such a misuse of their, of their skills? Like 
it, it just seems like if you were, if, and not you specifically, but in your field, if this is something that was already being practiced, why is there, and, and again, maybe this was happening already, but it was just an uptick and we're seeing it more? Uh, evaluation, I can't, let me not sound like I speak for the masses I when I say, uh, why haven't we? And that, that is a good question. Why Why is it that it seems like there have been so many um, unfit um figures of authority in in these positions almost like um, they've been handpicked it's almost like they're look and again i come from the inner city so i think i have a slanted perspective my perspective is likely going to be different than somebody who's grew up in the suburban area sure. but it just seems like this is the mo and regardless of the city that i'm in regardless where i'm at it seems like everybody's saying police is always sweating me i'm always getting shook shook down by the cops like and, and I, I know you're not speaking for the community, but I'm just saying, like, it just seems like it's always been there. Sure. So so this is what I when I when I said that it seems like something has changed about what we looked for. Um, I've had I mean, the chiefs and the captains that are already in position now that I don't evaluate because they already have the position um, will tell me I didn't have to do this, doc, when I did my psyche bow. And so I think what's happening is just the change in the way we are evaluating. So um Somebody said to me before, I just did an interview. I sat and talked to the doc. They kind of asked me a couple of questions. They even asked me like, hey, are you having any trouble with this? And naturally, you know, if you have any good sense, you say, no, not no trouble at all. Right. Um, and then now we have instruments. Right. So I don't ask I don't ask most of the clients that come to my office any questions. I mean, sometimes there's an integrity piece of like, hey, is this an issue? But for the most part, I recognize that sometimes it's insight. Sometimes you don't know you're having issues with this. So me asking you and you have the ability to tell me that that's an issue might not be the case. So we have instruments that where I can check your memory. You know, a lot of times we used to ask people, hey, are you having trouble with your memory? People, no, no, my memory is amazing. And then, you know, remember when we talked about the beginning of the appointment? No, no, what did you say? So now we have instruments where I can just test your memory, your short-term memory, your processing speed. You know, so I don't ask you about your memory. Um, we have questions where I do an assessment for your IQ. So what is your intelligence like? What is your nonverbal and verbal abilities like? And so what I'm saying is I think initially the evaluations, maybe they were interviews, maybe they were um, screeners, uh, maybe they weren't instruments that were data driven that supported, hey, if they scored this high or performed this well, then this is a person who would be appropriate. And so now you have I mean, they're very likely. I mean, we've had jokes with some of our some of our um, sheriffs and chiefs have said, Doc, if I had to take your evaluation now, I'd probably be out of a job, you know, and it's mm -hmm. like, well, good, good thing for you. You don't have to go back through this process. Right. Maybe not so much for the community. But I think the reality of that is well, like any field, you know, as a as a professional now, my licensure exam was much harder than maybe my predecessors. You know, in some in some cases, they didn't have this exam. Right. At some point, this started. And you've got people that have just been grandfathered into the practice because they've been practicing. Okay. Um, so I think it's the same with the process of this evaluation. And so, yes, as we become more stringent about how we test and how we evaluate, we are able to better predict and better screen out people who are not appropriate. And so potentially people have gotten through before um, that should not have. Awesome. I like that. I think that's a really good explanation. Um, I want to kind of learn a little bit about, about you when you were a child, but I want to just ask, like, what would... 10 year old Octavia like what would she say about you today if you was able to like go back and she and show her hey girl this is what I came from this is what I'm looking like what do you think she would think and how would she feel about where you are today uh, <clears throat> I think you know what I think she would be she would be clapping and rooting like <laughs> like Martin barking you know like yes this is exactly what uh we talked about this this is what we this is what 
I mean, it might not look the same. I found I've altered, right, the version of uh, what I said I wanted to do. But I did that. And, I, I, you know, a lot of times it's kind of like that childhood sweetheart, right? It's very rare that you see somebody that was in a relationship in high school or in middle school together, still together as an adult, right? And so it's 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 kind of one of those scenarios of like, man, you said, we said we were going to do this at eight. And then and, and at 38, we are we did that. You know, I think she would be I think she would be excited. I think she would um, I think she would be glad that she pressed me uh, uh, when at, at the time. And it's funny to even talk about myself in some version of a third person. But, yes, I think I think she would be very Look how she's just using doctor talk on me. She's talking like, I don't want to talk about myself in the yes, third person. I just don't. Ten-year-old Octavia, what is that about? You got you got me talking like I got personality. Oh, no, you ain't got multiple personalities, <laughs> Doc. And, and for everybody that's listening, I'm asking the question so she's not crazy and she's not doing that by design. And he is, and you are qualified to say that. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I want to know a little bit about um, how you grew up. Where did you grow up at? Um, where did you go to school? Like, what was things that you did when you were younger to help you prepare for, for where you are right now? Um, I am from Dallas. Um, for the most part, I grew up in Oak Cliff. Okay. Um, shout out to the cliff. Shout out. Uh, Oak Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, but, and I say, I say that to say, um, but I was really strong in athletics. Um, so one of the most influential people, um, period, in my life, uh, Coach William Mookie Smith, rest in peace. Um, that was my track coach. Okay. And so um, I went to school, though, in Pleasant Grove for the most part. So I say that I'm, I'm from Oak Cliff, but I went to Skyline. Um, I went to Spruce. Um, I had um, I went to I went to Atwell and Brown. Actually, I did a lot of moving around in school. I, I probably touched most of the Dallas schools. So, you know, we probably could line up some mascots in here and, and everybody could be excited. But um, so you were you were in track. As a young as a young person, when did you get into track? Um, because my family, we got a huge track uh, background. My sister went Division One, uh, was a long jumper, set the record in the state of Colorado for long jumping. She would have done the same thing in Texas. Are I just want to put that out there. She would have done her thing out here in Texas as well. Um, and you know, I, I ran a forty nine second four hundred. You know what I'm saying? I was broke fifty seconds. I ain't saying I was just no uh, Michael Johnson or nothing. But track was a big thing for us, and I remember. Um, getting into those blocks, getting ready to run that 400. And I used to ask myself, like, bro, why are you doing this? You know, that was the hardest race. What races did you run? I was a 200-400. Okay. Um, and then triple jump. Okay. Yeah. So I was uh, a lot more athletic than you were. Um, pretty. Yeah, pretty that's pretty that's her own personal that opinion. Was, She's not funny. qualified to even say that. <laughs> My credentials say that I can know. <laughs> I, I dropped the 49-second quarter. I didn't tell y'all what I ran in the 200, but I mean. It wasn't that great either, y'all. I was. I'm gonna look good. you up after this. So. Yeah, I'm gonna look you up too. So you ran, you ran a 200, you ran a 400. I did. Was that like running a tack or running a USA track and field as a kid? I ran USA. So we, so we ran for a team called Texas Heat. I, I started running when I was um, about eight. Okay. And so, and honestly, it was. I went to daycare. My babysitter had kids in track. She took us all to practice, and while we were playing off to the side. My coach was like, "Who is that? Why is she not at track practice?" And my babysitter was like, "She here because she we watch we watch her." <laughs> and and my kid got practice, and he was like, "Put her out here. Where's her mom?" So, uh, that was how I started running track, and um, and he actually coached at at Spruce. 
So eventually, as I got old enough to start going to school, you know, he kind of was he was really influential in where I went to school, making sure that um, I had good training, that I was very, very talented. And so he did not want people to sort of spoil me and, oh, you don't have to practice or um, a lot of times people can't coach talent, yeah. you know, and so they just kind of allow you to do whatever your potential is. But he always wanted me pushed. I, I remember my older sister and my cousins, they all ran track when I was a kid and I was uh, four years old. Shout out to Marcus Walker Track Club out there in, in Colorado. And um, I wanted to run track so bad when I was a kid and I was four years old. And I remember asking my mom and said, Mom, can I go run track? And she said, we well, got to ask the coach. And I remember working up the courage and asked him, I said, you know, I, I want to run track, sir. And he said, well, how old are you? And I said, I'm four. And he said, you got to come back next year. And I was crushed. But we used to have track meets on the side. Like we was like practice was for us. We was practicing whatever they was doing. We was doing it out there in the bleachers right. and we was doing it on the side. And I remember our division was called 10 and under. Mm-hmm. So the next year I came back, I was five years old and uh, I had to run against 10 year olds. And I remember getting last place almost every time until I got, you know, to about eight or nine years old. But it developed that character inside of me that I was like, bro, you got to keep going. And I always had so much fun running track. I remember going from state to state, going to regionals and then going to nationals and going to junior Olympics. And I did get that junior Olympics uh, sixth place medal. So don't even, hey, did you did you get a medal? Yeah, I'm all American. So see, I'm like, you want to, we might need to get some internet or something right now and pull up some stuff because you, you keep talking to me about that. I want to pl- cite some records also. But yes, no, we went to junior Olympics every year. Um Octavia Garrett uh, was my name. <laughs> I think it's relevant. That's I am flex. I am Dr. Landrum now, but I, I was Octavia Garrett then. And so you could absolutely Google me. <laughs> um, so we should be able to find some some times and some articles. I'm still Tark Shabazz. Y'all can check me out. You might catch me on that 800 <laughs> or had to run the 800 from time to time. I ran the quarter mile. Uh, you could check me out there, too. Uh, it might not be as qualifying as you were. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what how did athletics you know, go into this plan of of where you are today. How did the what you did as an athlete uh, get you there to this point where you're at today? Sure. Uh, track is hard. People people think that, you know, a lot of times I tell people, you know, I, my sport is every sport's punishment, right? What we do as what we compete and do is what y'all only do when y'all get in trouble. So you, you are not ready uh, to do this for <laughs> for not punishment. But um, so track is hard. So there were a lot of moments where you digging deep, you know, where it pushed you. Uh, my coach was really big. He coached all girls, but he treated us like boys. It was like, hey, no crying and, you know, get ready for life. You know, and I think that was um, that was actually one of the bigger lessons that I kind of took from track. I mean, uh, my coach was old school coach, cussed me out. You know, he he was on us. You know, parents have a seat. You know, you bring them here. You want you want a scholarship. You want your kids to go far in life. Let me do my job, you know. And so and he did it very well. Um, but he was hard on us, you know, no boyfriends uh, to you 23. You know, he was he was on us. Um, and so that actually but that got me ready. I was able to, you know, like I said, he cussed us out. And so we learned to hear the message Yeah. Um, and not so much exactly what he was saying. You know, don't get stuck with the words. But he said, you know, um, the world will be wrong. You know, do it, it will be um, dished out you, to you this way from people who do not love you. Yeah. So uh, it, com- it comes this way, but we love you. And so. I think that was what helped me be able to say, you know, when when it's rough now, you know, when people are not prepared for me, you know, when they when they see me and don't expect me to be the doctor, you know, when they don't expect me to have um, the credentials that I have. It's like, okay, I'm you know, my 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 skin is thick now. Uh, So that helped me. 
We're going to take a quick break and you're going to check out this ad from Dream Motivates. I want y'all to check out my man Dream Motivates and, and uh, tell me what you think about this commercial. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome back. I uh, hope that you enjoyed that. We're still here with my guest, uh, Dr. Octavia Landrum. Um, and so we want to get back into a little bit about tracking. Um, tell us a little bit about how track helped you educationally. Um, how far how far were you able to take it on the track and field? Um, so track paid for school. I it went, paid for school. It paid for school. It paid, it paid for uh, my undergraduate degree and my master's. Okay. Um, not my doctor, but so I um, was division one athlete. Look at her trying to flex on me. I didn't. I didn't make it to Division One. My bad. I said I would. <laughs> uh, so I went to University of Kansas. I was a Jayhawk. Rock and, chalk. Rock chalk. And then we. And then I went to University of Houston. Okay. Um. So I graduated in three years. My undergrad. So I still had some eligibility. Um. And then at U of H, I was able to start a master's program, and so they were able to pay for that. So yeah. Awesome. And so you you were able to leverage your track and field expertise that took you to college. And then um, just when I think about, you know, becoming a doctor and just the amount of school that goes into it in itself, like, how did you keep yourself inspired and motivated to keep going to school? OK, you got your master's and they say, all right, girl, you still got four years left. Like, talk to us about that journey. I know. Tell me about it. So so altogether, um, I did 11 years of, of college. You guys, 11 years of school, you can do it. So you can finish your undergraduate so degree, I, man. So let me tell you, somebody actually said. Um, there was a point where I was asking those type of questions. Like I said, so I was a child and I said, I want to be a psychologist. And then I go to college and then someone says, OK, you need to do four years. You'll get a degree in psychology, but you can't do anything with a bachelor's in psychology. Okay. Uh, you need a master's, but you won't be a boss. You you can do some therapy. You won't be to diagnose and assess. So if you want to if you want to do everything, you've got to go all the way. That's another five years. Um, and so initially I heard that and I thought, wait a minute, you know, four years of undergrad, two years of a master's, five years of a doctorate. Um, we're talking 11 years. And so initially I was asking about the shortcuts, like, Hey, is there, what version is there some, you know, is there a program that's a merger of these programs? Do I have to do 11 years? Cause you know, I want to eventually start family and, you know, do something else besides be in school. And so I talked to a professor and I said, man, 10, you know, this is what I want to do, but just, you know, I can't imagine 10, 11 years of my life just in school, even after being in school, you know, K through 12. And he said, listen, 10 years is going to pass whether you do something with it or not. You're going to either look up and it'll have been 10 years and you can either say, I could have been a doctor right now. Or you'll say, I am a doctor. And so he said, it's up to you. He said, you can do nothing. And then at some point you're going to say, man, it's been 10 years since I last thought about what I could do. So, you know, I heard that and I said, you're right. It's, if I'm still living, 10 years will pass. And I, I would hate to be able to say after 10 years man, if I'd have just started then, I'd have been done by now. Man, I want y'all to hear that that uh, perseverance. This is a guy some perseverance. And, and it sounds like you had moments of doubt yourself where you were going to say, like, how do I figure this out? So um, just for you all that are watching this, and I want you to understand that it, you can do it. 
you know, the people that are highly successful, like Dr. Landrum, she doubted herself at, at some point in time. But but what's the difference between doubt and then actually doing it? So you had that conversation with him. You like, yo, I'm not sure that that I really am cut out for another 10 years. Why did you decide to keep going? So I would like to correct you. It is not doubt. I would just say it was my patience that was tested. I okay. think there was a point where I just wanted I wanted to be successful right now. Right. Which I think is kind of this microwave society that we're in anyway. Yeah. Like we don't delay gratification is not necessarily a thing that people are used to. We are learning how to do things for everything faster. Right. And and that's that's honestly the mission. If I can get this done, what is the most efficient way to do it? And so I think I was in that mindset of, hey, I'm smart enough. You know, if there's a if I need to take double classes this semester or, you know, is there some formula that will allow me to just cut the 11 years, you know, because then I'm calculating wait a minute, I'm 18 and, and, you know, I'll be 28, 30. And, you know, when am I going to be able to have kids and get a family? You know, so I think I found myself feeling like, wow, it's a lot of time. Um, But eventually what happened is I just kind of decided like, hey, there's parts of what I want to do that I can live and enjoy even within this 10 and 11 years of school, right? No one said go to school and that's all you can do. And you just kind of lock yourself in a cave and you don't, you know, and so I think I just had to be patient about what parts of my life um, I could live through that process, you know. So, yes, I don't want to have any children while I'm in school because I don't want anything to stop me or slow me down. But, hey, the, I can date still. I can still go out. I can still do things, you know. And I, I was I knew that the discipline that I had already been taught from track, you know, the idea that, hey, you go to college and no one tells you what time to go home. No one tells you that, hey, you have to be in practice and yeah. you have to go to school. So I'd already tested that discipline and I knew that, hey, I can do I can do both. I can I can enjoy some of my life right now and still finish school. Um, and then after those 10 years, I have the whole rest of my life to do whatever else it is that I could not do. So I love that. I think discipline is such an underrated uh, attribute. I think, um, like you said, we live in a society where we want to get it all right now. And, and I don't think that people really tap into that discipline that's on the inside of you um, to allow you to do that. So I see that that's been something that you've used to help you get to where you are in your career and shout out to you for that. I wonder like if you could talk to 10 year old Octavia and little baby, Dr. Landrum. And again, I'm asking her y'all to talk in the third person. I know you know how she doesn't like doing that, but um, if, if I could talk to 10 year old Dr. Landrum, what would you tell her? Um, I honestly, I would, I would be clapping for her. I would tell her that, listen, the fact that you were able to ignore, you know, take out the noise, you know, the fact that you could hear Coach Mookie. Coach Mookie, like I said, was a very uh, vital part of me growing up. And I think I had moments then where I felt like, don't talk to me like that. Or, you know, I hated that he, you know, is so hard on me and I can't do anything. There were moments where I did not like that process. Um, and I'm, I would tell myself, trust the process it's going to work. Uh, it's, you know, you, you can do this and this will, this is going to get, you need this. This is going to get you ready because they going to talk noise when you get here to 30 year old self and you, but you'll be ready. You'll have heard it before, you know, you'll yeah. be ready for it. Um, I think the reality of it is, is I didn't 10 year old self didn't know that it was going to look like this or that I was going to be able to do it. But I think I've always felt like I've always been the person that if I say, if I tell you, I'm going to do something, consider it done I have I've never doubted that uh once I put my mind to it and uh, if I know I'm capable and even I'll say I don't want to say if I know I'm capable but the idea that 
hey, what is it that I need to make sure this gets done? You know, I'm resourceful. I'll figure it out. If I, if I have to start researching and finding people that, you know, how do I make sure that this will happen? So I think that is that same mentality. You know, I would tell 10-year-old self, thank you for not allowing this um, to be an excuse for you to not do well, mm. right? There are so many people who have these stories in prison that, you know, my parents got divorced and I started smoking or I dropped out of school and I, you know, and that becomes it. That becomes the excuse for why my life took a turn the wrong direction from that point. I was on my way and then this happened. And so, yes, girl, keep going. You know, don't worry about it. I'm glad that divorce didn't start you on a path the wrong direction. Yeah, it sounds like you actually use that to fuel you and keep you going. And I think sometimes we want to use those as excuses to hold us back. So, uh, so salute to you for that. Um, I, I kind of want to just talk a little bit about th your routine. And, and again, this is the pro formula where we're really trying to help professionals who feel stuck or who are trying to make it to that next level, get to that next level. Talk to us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis. What is your schedule? What is your routine like? Um, one of the nice things about my schedule is that it is what I say it is yeah. that I do love. I do love that about being in private practice. So um, a lot of times I sit out, sit out with my manager. Shout out to her, Tiffany Blacklock. She is the rock of Shout out Tiffany company. out there doing your thing, yeah. managing the team. Listen, love, love her. So um, I sit down with her and we have some forethought of, hey, you know, let's take a look at the calendar. What is life looking like? You know, and we we're weighing all kind of stuff like when does school start? You know, hey, do I want to do I want to see patients on the day the school starts? Just in case just in case we want to be crying in the car when we drop our kids off with their first day of school clothes, you know. So um, looking at the schedule and saying and a lot of it is it's a good balance between um, personal and business. So, you know, I'm, I have thoughts of, hey, how much revenue do I want the company to make per week? You know, what does that look like for each client? So how many people do I need to see? Um, and then what is my personal life looking like? You know, sometimes it's, hey, does my husband have something going on? And maybe Tuesday is not a good day to see patients. And so but let's go Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. You know, so we are able to uh, manage that. You know, I try to also uh, practice the idea that there's self-care is important. So I don't want to work 10 hours all day and I don't want to work on nights and weekends, you know. And so trying to make sure that I make a schedule that allows for a good balance of um, personal and business. Um, I see patients primarily heavily Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in my week. Monday and Friday is report writing. I do some um, remote things, consulting, training. Um, and so that's the way I'm able to sort of manage my week in a way that works for revenue, personal, and business. Mm, I love that. And I think when, you, when you're the proprietor, right, like you said, you're a sole practitioner. I was just, uh, a lot of the people that I talk to on my show are entrepreneurs. And one of the things that they talk about is I get clarity breaks when I need them and I'm able to take the time that I need them. One thing that I want to talk to is is those people that are out there that are juggling being a professional and being a wife and being a mom or being somebody's husband and being somebody's daddy. How do you juggle, juggle that? Because I know that your family is like at the forefront. You talked about your husband. You talked about your kids and, and what that means to you. How do you still make sure that you show up in your wife, but then still Dr. Landrum at the same time? Like she does have multiple personalities, as y'all can there see. Now, we here we go. We're back to multiple personality. For the record, this is he has no credentials <laughs> behind that statement. Um, what I will say is, I is I'm figuring it out all the time. I I will not say to you that I know the formula to uh, that balance. I think the the most important part for me is to be um, insightful uh, and, and be able to reflect. I don't always get it right. I have some days where I come home if it's a heavy patient day and I don't want a parent. Yeah. 
Um, uh, I have some days where I want to do a lot of parenting and I don't want to work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and different things pull me either way. Hey, you better see somebody if you want to if you want to make some money today or, you know, hey, you know, your kids, um, you've been buried into a computer you know, for the past couple of days, like give them some time. So it's not something that I'll say is um, is perfected, but it is something that I'm conscious about. So I continue to work on making sure that, hey, you know, this is this has been a heavy week, but let, let me organize my week maybe by the end of the week so that I have time to hang out with the kids or, hey, so I have time to go out with the husband or, you know, or, hey, we've been doing a lot of, it's a birthday coming and we're doing a lot of family time. And so maybe let me stack my schedule so that I'm seeing more patients on this time frame so that I can make it balance out. So, I mean, it's nice to have that flexibility. It's nice to be the owner so that I can make that decision, but it's constantly, um, that in itself is constantly work. And the reality of it is, is you're never off. You know, I am, even on my days where I say I don't have patients, it doesn't mean I'm not working, right? It is, I can still get a call. There's always emails I'm responding to. There's so many different opportunities for me to sort of be working, even if it's just making a decision, um, it it happens always. I'm never officially off. Yeah, I can re- I can relate. I, I got a big family, and um, you know, for me, I try to find ways that I can, um, be. I'm trying to be like fully immersed when I'm at home, so I'm not. You know, I try my best not to be distracted when I actually like have time. But then I'll tell the kids, yo, I got to go in the office real quick. I got to get some work in. Um, but I try to make the time. Like I was on my way out here to Dallas, uh, this week, and but my daughter, we were buying her a car, and I knew that my wife was like. She 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 had a way of telling me, but baby, I need you to be here to talk to the people so that we can do the haggling and all of that. And so, um, you know, I made sure like my flight left at nine o'clock. We left the uh, we left the uh, I got to the air. No, sorry, I, my flight boarded at nine o'clock. We left and got to the airport at nine o'clock. You know, so I try my best to make sure that when I'm when I have time, I'm intentional. I'm there. I try to take my daughter to school every morning or you know, try to do the things that I can, because ultimately when you pursuing professional, uh, a professional life and you pr- pursuing professionalism, sometimes the family got to take a backseat, like you said, sometimes, and then sometimes the business got to take backseat. But like you said, we got to always try to find a way to bring that check in and to bring that check home. Sure. So I, I I know how much your family is important to you. What are some of the things that your family is doing? Uh, you know, specifically, I know that you got, you got a husband who's in photography. Talk to us a little bit about his business yeah. and how you help yeah. and support him. Shout out to D. Landrum Photography. Um, so, yes, my husband is a photographer and a breeder. Um, so he breeds American bullies. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. We got some of those and, you know, we can have a conversation about that, too. Let me know. Uh, we got some puppies. And then also, um, and he's a photographer. So he um, has been, I think he's it's been 2014. He's actually been doing this for about almost 10 years. And so, but one of the coolest things is just, like I said, I think we've, He's had to, we've moved around a lot, you know, uh, whether it be for my profession, for school, uh, for work. Before I started practice, I worked for the federal government, so I did a lot of traveling. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's always been one of the things that I've hoped for him, too, is as I um, become more influential and develop these, this network and in these opportunities, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, people, sometimes people find me, you know, because, hey, I have a nice picture on my profile. And they're like, hey, who took that picture? Do you know somebody? And I'm like, oh, you know. I know somebody. It's funny that you say that. Yeah. So um, he has been, you know, is amazing, has an amazing eye. He's, he's the guy that likes to be behind the camera, but will make sure that you look good in front of the camera. Uh, so y'all check him out. He has um, 
social media page and a website as well. How they get a hold of him, man? I think we need to know his information. Yeah. Shout him out too. Shout out D Landrum Photography. Um, he has a Facebook. It's D Sean Landrum. So you can pull him up on his Facebook. He has an Instagram as well. Um, he has a phone number. Like how how much do we want him them to get a hold to him? Because we <laughs> yeah. can help. We, we don't want give we, don't, we don't want to call him. We don't want nobody okay. calling this mail. Okay. We don't want nobody calling him. But if you're in the DFW area and you need some photography, uh, reach out to my brother, man, because he's out here. He's he's professional. The man's got uh, some real live cameras and some lenses like I've never seen before, man. So I, I just uh, want to shout my brother out as well Thank and make sure that, that we follow him and we pro provide him with some support as well. Um, so talk to us a little bit about where, where you at right now, where you see your business growing in the next five Next few years, we don't got to necessarily say next five years, but sure. what do you want? What do you want to see your uh, your practice grow to? Sure. So I'm in the process now of getting some contracts. I wanted to, um, like I said, I've already kind of tackled the county. Uh, I'm working to tackle the city as well. So come on, city of Dallas. Come on, city of Dallas. I'm still here. Um, so we have. Um, there's been some. I don't know if you've kind of noticed on the news. There's been some critical incidents that have happened in Dallas. We've had some suicides of our um, uh, fire and rescue staff. We've actually actually had. Um, a recent suicide of a DPD after a critical incident. Um, and so there's there's still more to be done mental health. I think it's becoming more present. I think people recognize it's important, uh, but we've got to get our commissioners and city council behind funding um, the uh, services that are going to be necessary to support them. They have a hard job. It is yeah. not it is not an easy job. These decisions that they're making on the spot um, impact their life and the lives of other people. I mean, this is their actually functioning uh, in life and death, right, for them and for the people they take care of. So uh, once you step away from the uniform, you 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 don't you don't take that off when you take the uniform off, right? Like similar to how I talked about leaving it at the door, it's not as easy as it sounds. And so making sure that we can support um, the city as well, that's one of the things I'm working on, trying to pick a contract up um, for the city fire and rescue. And then um, I'm actually in the process, actually already of a, a contract with, um, California um, Department of Corrections Board of Parole. So I'm going to be the parole board evaluator that will determine um, Speak if, it. if people are um, ready for uh, parole or discharge. Now, now is this is this a formal RFP process that you have to go through? I did. So I've already so for that one, I've already went through the RFP process and I've already been um, awarded that. Okay. So we're just kind of we're kind of in a process there of paperwork. Yeah. Right. Um, so getting everything, um, I'll, I'll start in September, September 14th. So that contract is kind of. So that contract is already solidified. That one is done. That is that is solution focused all the way. The The city is what I'm speaking. We I have been in conversation uh, with the chiefs for the city. We're working on trying to get them to a process where they can actually um, extend for me to compete for the services for the city of Dallas. Yeah. I know that RFP process can be a, it could be a challenge. You know, I've had multiple businesses and trying to go after that government contract or get those government contracts isn't always easy. Give some advice to some of those people that are going through this RFP process. How can they um, break through it? I, I know sometimes it's going to be based on price and you got to have a good price, but how do you like give us some, some, uh, some game on how we can get through that RFP process for those who have to go through that uh, bidding process? Sure. Uh, my first piece of advice would be let them tell you no. Um, I started the RFP process, and honestly, the first time I had moments of uh, each obstacle of, hey, they want you to show proof of this. They want you to provide uh, this type of experience, or they want you to have this type of 
uh, resource. And so you find yourself like, oh, my goodness, this might be too much. Maybe I should back out of it. Um, I had a couple of times my first RFP where I actually decided like, oh, I'm just I'm not even going to submit. Like I might submit portion and then be like, oh, I'm just going to this might be too much. I'm going to this this the, the practice is too small for what they're asking. I'm not going to do it. And I had actually had somebody in HR and purchase and say, no, we are still waiting on it. Go ahead and submit it. We will tell you um, if this does not work. And, and thank God that um, she said that because. I was a, I was able to get that contract, but I pretty much almost counted myself out. So uh, stop counting yourself out, you know, know, before you even get there. Absolutely. I think it's so important what you just said right there is like you got to go for no. Yeah, like let them tell you, let them tell you that let you're not qualified. You you get into this process and then you get yourself overwhelmed and you stop going for it. Absolutely. They never told you not to submit that. In yeah. fact, they like in this yeah. situation, it sounds like they said, "Girl, no, no, please submit please it. We submit still it. got it open. We are still waiting." But mm-hmm. but how do we get out of our own way? And I'm I'm asking. One, because you're a professional and you like Storm, or not Storm, but one of the ex-people who was, I don't remember, the, the Dr. Gene Gray, that's who it was. So we sitting down, but but how do people get out of their own way? Because that's a challenge. It's like, I don't believe I can do it, or I went through this process and I'm looking at it, and I don't know that I'm qualified. Like, how do people get out of their own way so that they can go towards it and keep moving after it? Sure. To be honest, the, the best thing I can say about my whole process um, it's just self-checks, insight, having people around you that also can kind of tell you like, no, you know, sometimes you're kind of like, is this okay? This is, you know, the same thing you would do if you were getting dressed, right? You know, you, you get dressed and then you think it looks good. And then you look at to somebody that you trust and say, Hey, this is cute. And then they let you know, I'm like, mm, go back in there or yeah, this will work, you know? And so I think that was one of the, at some point I had to allow someone else to pat me on the back enough to say like, you have no idea that what you bring to the table is not necessarily the normal or it is more than uh what you think because when you're you know it's just kind of like coming up as an elitist as an athlete you are surrounded by other elite athletes and so you don't find yourself feeling special you are you know it's like I'm good and there you know you know we talk about track is nine lanes there are eight other people next to me just as fast you know and, and on any day they can they could compete better right not that they are better but that this could be the day that they give their better self. Right. And so, um, and I think that is the, the humbleness of it. So as long as you don't feel like I'm the best and there, it don't get any better. You'll, you'll keep going when you get to a point where you think you can't grow is probably where there is a problem, you know? So I think, um, you get out of your way by being reflective, being able to sit back and think about, you know, how, how did this go? What could I have changed? What can I do better? Letting other people give you that feedback. I, I like that. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing you say is, you know, when you're getting that feedback from others, but you got to also be careful who you get that feedback from, because I, I call them dream killers, people that know somebody that tried it before. And oh, I try to get a, I try to get a contract one time as a janitorial contract. And it ain't even, it wasn't easy. I don't know how you're going to get those services. So I think you got to be careful with the people that you get that advice from. And you got to make sure that you're in a circle of people that actually have your best interest at heart, right? Absolutely. Okay. I, th- I think that is, I mean, I, I did say get the feedback from people you trust, right? So we're not just asking anybody. And honestly, sometimes our naysayers yeah. are also. Sometimes are those also are our people that we those, trust. But, those, just but that. those are the people that motivate us also. So even when you tell me, no, nah, you know, because again, like I said, there's moments where I can be very humble, but there's also moments where it's a challenge. You can, it feels like a challenge for me and I respond well to challenges. You know, don't tell me 
I cannot do something. So you say that too long. Okay. And now I'm like, oh, I'm glad you said that was impossible because now, now I want to be the first person. She want to prove you wrong, man. She that she's trying to impossible. prove you wrong, yeah, y'all. She so, does not so tell me that because that that'll get me working too. I'll be up all night looking up some stuff, and by the time you wake up, I got a whole plan. So. No, so planning. I mean, we're talking about the tools and the and and the formula for success. Some of it is research. Sure, Some of it is believing in yourself and believing that you have the talent and you have the requisite skills to be at that next level. So I, I really, uh, I really hear you on that. And you all, if you're around people that are constantly discouraging you, I would encourage you to get a new group. Absolutely. Like you can't be around. You you want to be around people that have your best interests at heart. But there's got to be a fine balance of. I have your best interest at heart and then I just don't believe in you. And I think uh, uh, trying to figure out what that looks like sometimes can be a challenge because um, growing up in my neighborhood, there weren't a lot of, I would say, like professionals. There were people that were successful, but it was kind of going about it in the wrong way or they was doing it the wrong the wrong way. So I think ultimately you've got to be put yourself around people that that see who you are. They can project where you're trying to go. And then you got to be willing to cut people off. How is that? I mean, on your journey to become a doctor, uh, I'm sure that you've had to uh, shed some pounds, lose some weight on your way there. How's that been? Um, hmm, I was trying to think about that. I actually, what I'll say is I've, that journey has probably started long before it was about being a professional. I'll say that just even being an athlete, you know, True. just going back to being, trying to be a D1 athlete, even just True. In, in, in high school, trying to prepare myself for certain meets. There's, I mean, any anytime you don't have like minded people around you, you know, whether it's because they don't support what you do or because they want to do something different, uh, you have to make some choices because, you know, like I would tell an alcoholic, you can't go to the bar and say I don't drink because enough people around you will, will convince you to take a drink. And so um, you have to be around people with, you know, with similar passions, with the idea that they want to keep going forward that they also are going to be rooting for that the jealousy goes away when they also have something to be pushing yeah. for. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's not that if you are the only one in your circle um, working towards something successful, you're not going to go very far. You are only as strong as your weakest link, you know? And so iron sharpens iron. Right. Um, so having more people around you where everybody's going somewhere. Right. And that, that was, and that was important from a young age. Right. My mom didn't want me around. Um, the girls, she said they were fast. Too fast. That girl's yeah, fast. Yeah, that fast. She fast. She, she gonna have babies. And if that ain't what she wanted for me, hey, I, I couldn't even play with her. She outside, I'm coming inside. She making up dishes. Come on in here and have a seat because she outside. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, you that circle, that the shedding of the pounds, like you say, that started a long time ago. But um, and I think I've done a pretty decent job of, you know, keeping people around me that support me, that believe in me, that also have things going and you know that we can support as well that you know that I can take perspective from I mean I think in the professional field as well I've gained some people um not necessarily just shedding pounds but adding pounds right yeah. people who can say hey this I've done this before uh don't do it like that and I'm like great because I don't need to um rehash. yeah we don't got to reinvent the yeah building. we don't have we don't have to do it and, and I don't have to take some of the falls that have already been taken you know so if I can learn from your mistakes that's also amazing I think um, that process is as far as family, I would say that's one of the things that has been more or less difficult is trying to include my family in my success, but not being able to offer them, um, all of the opportunities because, Hey, you know, this requires you to have this credential and maybe you don't have it, you know, yeah. um, or this requires you to have this special skill and you don't have it, but trying to, you know, keep my family involved and support them. That's been, that's probably been my next biggest challenge, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's been awesome. I got one last segment, and I call this um, Settle the Score. Okay. 
And so uh, in this segment right here, what, what we do is we just we know people are debating this and we want to just really talk about it. And so um, I got a couple quick questions that I'm going to ask you on um, the first one. Who's had a greater impact on your life or on the culture? Would you say uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or would you say uh, Malcolm X? I would say Malcolm X. Malcolm X. I would say Malcolm X. Okay, I thought Doctor. I thought the doctor was gonna <laughs> stick together here, but you, 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 you. Uh, I, I love him. Okay, but I would say Malcolm X. I like, um, I like the way Malcolm X responds to adversity. Yeah, there we go. Um, if you were going on a vacation, would you rather go to uh, L.A. or would you rather go to Miami? L.A. L.A. over Miami. L.A. Okay. Uh, are you a reader? Like you like flipping pages, or you want to pop in an Audible and listen to Audible? Definitely audible. I am an auditory processor. If I hear it, it actually sticks. Um, so I would rather hear it than read it. Okay. And then uh, we, we got to know this answer right here. Um, who are you taking, Shikari Richardson or Flojo? <laughs> Man. I'm talking about they on 100 meters together oh, right now. Who are you goodness. taking? Is it Shikari or are you taking Flojo? Come on I, now. I feel like you put the D-Town in me on the, oh, on the oh, band right there. So here, let me say this. I absolutely support my sister from Dallas. I I, I love Shakari. I think she's doing great things. I hope she continues to do. Shout out Shakari. Shout, shout out. Go. Shout out to her. Um, congratulations on that win. Uh, but Flo is still. She's still the record holder. She's still the record holder. Okay. And so hey, I cannot take Flo. Awesome. Well, it's been it's been awesome. I want you to tell people how they can get a hold of um, how to, they can get a hold of your practice and how they can reach out to you if they have if they have psychological services or needs. Sure. So solution focused psychological services. Uh, we have a website, solution focused Um We have an Instagram page. We have a Facebook. We have a LinkedIn solution focused psych services. Um, you can find us there. Um, you can always we are in our office in Richie Towers in Dallas. Um, 8585 North Stimmons Freeway, uh, Suite 700 South. Um, so come find us there. You can check us on the website, give us a phone call. Um, we have online booking. Um, so yeah, reach out. We are here. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap of the Pro Formula Podcast. I'm hopeful that you enjoyed. I'm your host, Tarek Shabazz, and I can't wait to see you next time. Peace. Peace.